Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first edition of the PR Week podcast for the year of 2023. This is your weekly podcast for everything going on in the worlds of PR and communications. I'm Frank Washko, guest hosting the show this week, along with our wonderful guest host, Diana Bradley. Diana, welcome to this week's show. Thank you for having me. How was your Christmas break and your holiday break? It was good. I was actually just telling you and our, our surprise guest, I won't get. I won't spoil who our guest is before you can say it, but um, <laughs> I was just telling both of you about this, but I might as well mention it on the podcast. I went to England over my Christmas break, and who did I happen to see but our very own Steve Barrett. I was waiting for the train, and uh, a, a train pulled up, and he was in the last car. So we took a quick selfie together, and, and that was that. But it, of all the people you would expect to see, that was kind of a shock. It sounds like a true holiday miracle. It really was. All How right. was yours? <laughs> it was largely indoors and uh, a little bit too COVID-filled for my liking, but, you know, lots to look forward to in 2023. So, yeah, onwards and upwards. So, we have a great guest for you that fits the occasion, and that's a, a real Silicon Valley tech, social media, uh, communications legend, and that's Sean Garrett. So, Sean, how are you doing today? I'm doing awesome. So, so excited to be kicking 2023 off with you. This is like the first like real work thing I've done in 2023, so we'll see what <laughs> happens. Just let it roll and let all the all right. holiday vibes kind of flow through. Diana, the story of you and Aunt Steve is amazing. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I really, I really can't get over that, but that's so awesome. Um, Me neither. Uh, small world, small world. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so Sean, let's go back about two and a half years. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, you, you launched Mixing Board, which is a really yep. unique agency, really unique proposition. You did it mm -hmm. summer 2020 when the world seems to be really falling apart. Um, yep. You know, you, you did it without an established business model. And I, I remember you gave a quote to a reporter doing our agency business report profile of it, in which you were like, you know, I, I'm an idiot. Why do I make this so hard on myself? So, uh, you know, what, what do you think looking back two and a half years? How's it been working out? I'm, def I'm definitely an idiot. Um, I, I can confirm that. Um, and what Frank's referring to is basically Mixing Board largely was a Sean Garrett production with uh, a, a very strong community of people um, and a lot of support from the industry. Um, but I've started a couple agencies with other great people and, and I've built these different things over time and, and mixing board was by, is by far kind of the most, the, everything has been different and we can get into that. Um, but mixing board by far an order as a magnitude is very different. It's effectively um, a community of top comms and brand marketing leaders and the community part seems relatively straightforward, really smart, like people get together and they help each other and they support each other. We have a Slack group and that that's all pretty normal. But the 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 kind of the crazy part of it was that it was that I was thinking as we were going into this and when I first launched it um, is how do you how do you create um, what's the future of effectively consulting? What's the future of agencies? How is this all going to work out? And and I and I thought that by bringing people together and really smart folks, the best of the best, we can create new models of kind of helping organizations find the best people and the smartest folks and then also help those really smart folks um, leverage kind of their own capabilities, and their own experiences and their own, um, you know, things that they've they've learned over time. And that could come in the form of mentorship. It could come in the form of 
helping organizations find great talent. It could come in the form of advice. But I was basically like at this point, you know, well into my career where I would get these phone calls all the time and people with five more houses than I have asking me for advice. And I would get on the phone with them. I would give them my perspective. And at the very end of the call, they'd be like, Sean, thank you so much. This is like, I didn't know I could think of comms this way before. This is so great. Um, but, uh, you know, um, and, and, you know, now I'm going to go spend money on other people. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of weird. Like, why, why am I giving away this stuff for free all the time? So I really wanted to find a way to, to connect, you know, smart people with smarter people. And, and that was kind of the impetus of mixing board that we can dig into. It's interesting that you say that because there's there's just been so much talk over the past, really since the pandemic started, but it sounds like mm-hmm. you were even seeing that before that, where top communications executives and the people that work with them are really being expected to see around corners in different ways yeah. than maybe they were in years in the past. And, and, and so that's been your experience as well. Yeah, to completely. And I mean, you know, not to spoiler alert, and we talk about, we'll talk about Twitter, but like a lot of this is based on my experience at Twitter when I was the very first comms marketing anything at Twitter in 2009. And obviously, you know, we're now at six different Twitters since then. Um, But, you know, I had gone into Twitter in 2009, having a lot of experience, political experience. I'd run communications for organizations before I had started an agency um, called 463 Communications. I'd worked at, at, at senior levels at big agency or, you know, like top, top tech agencies. So I went into Twitter thinking kind of, you know, hey, slam dunk, I've got this, right? And little did I know like how complex or hard or, you know, basically, uh, you know, that it would be and how hard it was to basically keep the kind of the strategic front ahead of the kind of reactive front. And, you know, I built a team there and we, you know, built a foundation when it was like a very hard place to work at. I mean, it was fun. It was interesting, awesome people, but, you know, it was hard. And after Twitter, I was just really struck by how hard it was and how also how lonely the role was in many ways. And there was no one I could turn to for advice, really. It was very hard externally. So there was no real foundation for that. And that was actually the formation of this thing called Permana Collective that I started with. Brian O'Shaughnessy, who was the former head of communications at Skype, and Brandy Barker was the former head of communications at Facebook. And we created Pramana basically to bring kind of this inside knowledge of how what it's like to be in that seat and then work with other organizations. And then fast forward eight years to 2020, we had done so many amazing things at Pramana and worked with so many different amazing clients. But I was feeling like we're in this body of a consultancy and, and what I was trying to do needed to be in a different kind of body to like have the kind of impact um, that I personally wanted to have. So that was kind of the manifestation mixing board where how can we bring together these people who are at the top of their game and um, but who feel lonely or feel isolated or are expected to know everything from their CEO as you hit it go into COVID, obviously, suddenly you need to understand internal communications like by the back of your hand. Suddenly you need to understand all these different manifestations of how, you know, uh, distributed work works when you've never done that before. So there's just so much things that go into this role that I felt like I could help others with. What have um, what have been the lessons learned since you launched in, in mid-2020? How many, first of all, how many people are you up to now that you've, you've included? It's about, we're, we're about 200 people 
and it wow. makes okay. it more than that. And, and, the, and those 200 people are, and I don't, and I don't mean, I don't want mixing board to be this mysterious kind of like thing. Um, it, it, it shouldn't be. Um, so we're about 200 people and there are many folks who are currently heads of communications or heads of marketing at really big, interesting organizations or just smart, doing smart stuff. Um, we have a lot of people who have formerly been in that role who are now consulting and, you know, who have you know been a CMO or been a VP of communications or been a CCO and now we're consulting on their own. Uh, and then we have a bunch of folks who have, you know, are just the best of the best at different specialties like content strategy, community strategy, public affairs, government relations, speech writing, et cetera. So that's the idea. That's thus the mixing board, right? How do we bring all these people together? Because, you know, part of my ethos too is that I just don't brand strategy communications, content strategy, to me, they're, they're all communications. Um, and regardless of the label you're putting on it. And so if I can actualize, actualize that and bring people together, then, then we can make it even more real. Um, so it's about 200 folks and, um, and, and we grow, um, a little bit more every month and we have a very thoughtful process on how we bring people in. Um, but it's mostly around, can this person contribute to this community? And um, are they generous with their time? Are they generous with their perspective? Do they have an expertise that's special? Could we, could I be excited to learn from them? For example, could we bring someone who has specific experience who spent most of their career working in Germany or Japan or Korea or comes from a sector that I'm unfamiliar with, like CPG or automotive? Um, so we're, we're just trying to bring people, really smart folks together and, and, and then see where it goes from there. And, and as is far there, as what I've learned, as far as what I've learned, just to answer that question real quick, building community to me was the heart, like getting the really smart people um, is hard. Um, and we did that. And I think we did a great job of that. And then the next step for us is really figuring out what's the kind of model that could sustain this? Like, what's the financial model? What's the business model? What's the product model? All those things um, are hard enough when you're trying to build new models of agencies or consultancies. Uh, exponentially harder and more complicated when you're building community. Just the dog. <laughs> Happy to have the dog as the the guest, the guest yeah. guest yeah. for this podcast. Exactly. with us. Yeah. So, is there an example you could give us of some really good, interesting client work you did since launching the organization that you you might not have been able to do in a traditional organizational model? The things that we have, and this really, I would say, very hybrid um, in what we do, and. Some of it, frankly, is very transactional, um, which is something that I probably would never have done. But the transactional stuff is company X looking for a head of communications or looking for a very specialized uh, expert who can help help them with something. And we tap our community and this gets into the, you know, trying to avoid ways to do stuff for free. Um, we tap our community saying, hey, does anybody know anyone who'd be great at this role? And, you know, people fill out suggestions and um, and then if we and if we find someone for an organization, we charge a modest you know, finder's fee, you know, say like 20K. But we split that 50 50 with the member who made the suggestion. So suddenly someone's making, you know, five figures um, for making a suggestion, whereas like in our old model, you know, People in my seat are constantly taking calls from recruiters or other people saying, hey, who do you know? Who do you know? Who do you know? Who do you know? And, and we're really trying to find ways that we can monetize 
um, uh, that kind of expertise and experience for folks. And then in terms of other work we've done, being able to bring together, you know, I, I'm not going to get into specifics of clients because I just, I just don't do that. But the, we're, we've been able to bring together people who have run communications for Slack, run communication, you know, worked in the Obama White House at the, t- the highest levels, run communications for Instagram and bring people together and these three people together to provide expertise for an organization who is, you know, trying to go through something, going through a moment, need some, need some perspective and to be able to pull one of those humans in would have been hard for them, especially how fast they're moving and the, the, the challenges they're facing for mixing board to be able to pull together three people who can jump in, provide advice, provide um, perspective is a really powerful thing. And, um, and I think very accretive to our industry, um, and helps, you know, basically meet our goal, which is to raise the value of the work we do and and, and those who do it. Yeah, for sure. Um, you mentioned Pramana Collective before, and I, I yep. can actually remember when you guys launched and it, it sort of yep. felt like a, an NBA all-star team, right? You had uh, yep. you who ran comms to Twitter mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. from Facebook. I mean, it, mm-hmm. just a really, really impressive group of people. What uh, what are the the things you learned from from launching the firm, from running it, and you know that you use still to this day? The biggest, the, it was a fascinating experience at Pramana with some of the smartest people I've ever worked with in my life, and I'm happy to like spend time with anyone who wants to start a strategic communications agency um, because it's I've learned a ton, and that's probably like five con five podcasts worth of content at least. Um, but, but, you know, it was, it was a really interesting experience where we, you know, you said it was like an NBA all-star team and it was, um, but I think the biggest lesson I learned was kind of to listen to the work. It may, may sound weird, but like the, we, we intentionally brought together like really great people who were multidisciplined. Again, this is like, it's into the ethos of mixing board where we had kind of brand strategists. We had people that work experts at research. And we had a lot, obviously a lot of communications experts who came from dis- different disciplines. And, and we started off thinking, you know, we're really going to help people who are going through inflection points and help them with their strategy and their positioning. And, you know, we worked with, you know, Airbnb, we worked with Slack, we worked with um, DreamWorks, we worked with the San Francisco 49ers, we worked with Condé Nast, we worked with, you know, a whole horse host of organizations that were just, you know, really challenging and interesting opportunities. But the, the thing that we learned most of all was, um, and I think we we're probably early to this, was just the kind of the power of internal communications. And what I mean by that is not just in like a very reductive way, but companies will call us up and they would say, you know, we have this issue where we just can't get our positioning or strategy out. Obviously our PR firm sucks or our head of comms is terrible or this thing is broken, but no one understands what we do or why we're trying to do it. And we went through a very, we, we refined a, a methodology over time where we would sit down with folks and talk to them about kind of their opportunities, their strategy, what they're going through. But having work inside these organizations, we also could speak the language of the business. We could speak engineering. We could speak product. We could speak sales. We could speak biz dev. We kind of knew how all these things worked inside of companies. And we were able to ask questions that were very evocative. Um, and the thing we constantly pulled out over and over again was there was some sort of internal dissonance that was creating the issues externally. 
very rarely was an ex- was an external issue. It was almost always an internal issue that was creating this dissonance. And so our job over time, which I didn't expect as we started this thing, was to really fix that internal process. What what was happening? What how we need to get, you know, this executive on the same page with this exe- their other executive, how we need to make sure that the entire company understood kind of what we were trying to do and how we were trying to get there. And, and that really became our, our process and our specialty over time, which was super fascinating. And I had, you know, if you asked me in 2013, whether that's what I'd be doing, I would have been surprised, but it was really that, that kind of leaning into that and learning and listening both on the individual products or projects, but also overall, and basically let, let that take us like where, what we became really good at and specialized at. Yeah. And, and ahead of the time for sure, because now, I mean, we hear, CTO say I spend two thirds of my time on it. Hundred percent, hundred percent. I'm really good at building things that people need ten years later. <laughs> well, Twitter is still around, and you helped uh, you helped to build that. You mentioned you were the first, yeah. you know, comms or marketing. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it, I mean it's, it's it's kind of still around. I mean, let's be honest. It, it's in some form, yeah. So, uh, but what are your the broadest question possible? What are your thoughts on the the direction of it, or at least what the direction of it looks like this week. I mean, it changes every week. I mean, doesn't it? But I mean, I mean, honestly, it's, there's a few things I'll just like lay out with Twitter, which is number one, like, I don't know how much, I don't know how much other organizations could or should try to learn from Twitter. It's such a unique situation. Um, And, you know, Musk, such a unique person for better or for worse. Um, what he's done is like unprecedented. I know there's like lots of like, you know, talk about like, oh, well, you know, all founders are looking at Elon Musk and saying, well, I'm going to take a page from his playbook. I mean, that's just crazy. There's just like, what can you take from that? Like, you know, beyond some like high level stuff. Um, but I think obviously it's insane that Twitter, which is a communications platform and is so ingrained in communications globally. And I really emphasize the global part. Um, has no communications team. And it was, it's, it was obviously completely insane when I came in the door in 2009 and Twitter at that point, just for context, um, you know, it already, the founders had already been on the Oprah Winfrey show. Um, you know, there are big things happening in Iran, um, that where Twitter was being given credit, having influence on, there was a lot of crazy things that were happening in 2009 when it was still very nascent service, and I walked through the door and, you know, we didn't even have a media list. Right. And um, so to think about um, what Twitter is today and how it is so ingrained in society around the world that there is no communicate that there are no communications people to me is just I mean, it's just it's unfathomable. But it's the reality. And obviously, I'm very sad about that. I would I, I'm guessing this is a flat no, but um what are your your thoughts about any company you know whether it's tesla or twitter whatever this is there any way you could ever make it work without having a communications department um you know people have made the argument that that he's such a big voice that that he doesn't need to have one in the same way that a traditional ceo does or a traditional owner does is there any way you can see him making it work without a pr team 
I mean, I could see him making it work for him. And that's kind of what he's doing with Twitter. What He's trying to fit Twitter into his perspective on what Twitter is for him. Right. Um, because he is in the ultimate like bubble. He's in his own bubble, which is a very ironic given it's Twitter. Um, but so for him, you know, when he talks on Twitter for he, Elon basically sees that as like, why that's all you need to do. Right. Um, what he's missing is all the nuance that goes into all the communication that goes into like dealing with policy issues in the UK or dealing with entertainers in Africa or dealing with cricketers in India um, and all the positive things that could come out of like basically that in those interactions, let alone mitigating kind of the negative things that are obviously going to happen downstream. So yes, he can do it for this thing that he wants to build or he wants to create. And that may be fine for him, but you know, it's not really what, when we think of Twitter, what, what Twitter is and what Twitter really needs. I think the, what we all have to get um, behind is the fact that like Elon is changing something, you know, s- slower than I think people expected in November, but it's going to, you know, it's going to be gradual. Um, something that's going to look a lot different, you know, when he's done with it, unless like, you know, there's a new CEO who comes in who's given the actual, like, leeway to actually do anything which you know is to be determined um and i'm not really confident about that but yeah i just don't see how you can operate twitter in any way that we see twitter effectively without communications or by the way or public affairs people or government affairs people or an hr department or a janitorial service or all those basic services right so um years before that you you were a four mm. six three now is it true that was that was named after turning a double play i've heard this but Correct. I, I don't know if it's true yes it is. yes okay. second second base second base to short to first yes okay so um you know, it's interesting. And then I remember you you guys had this this concept of bridging Silicon Valley and D.C. And there there yep. doesn't seem to be much of a connection there at all nowadays in that the um, at least at the, the very, like, you know, the, the foremost level, you know, whether it's congressional hearings or whatever the case is. And there's, you know, constant threats with the, the new Republican House that's yet to be seated as we speak. But um, yeah. yeah. You know, it it seems like there's just a, a big gap there, and it's getting bigger. Um, you know, what do, what do you make of that conflict? Well, I would say two things. One is that um, I would disagree that there's not that interconnection um, because there's it's way deeper now in 2023 than it was when I started um, 463 with Tom Galvin and Jim Hawk and in 20 in you know 20 years ago, Jesus, um, and you know we. We obviously saw the need for Washington and Silicon Valley to at least be able to like understand what each other is saying. Um, but just for context, um, you know, Google didn't even have one person in Washington, D.C. until about 2006, 2007. Um, Facebook, you know, didn't exist. And, you know, now you're talking about those two organizations are the two biggest, you know, lobby spend organizations on the planet. Um, you know, I wonder how many, I mean, I don't know how many people Google has in Washington, D.C., let alone around the world in government, government relations and likewise with Facebook. So but those things didn't exist in 2003 when we started it. So there's been a lot of 
institutional growth from the tech industry into DC. There's been a lot of like, especially from the, you know, the larger organizations that literally didn't exist 20 years. Um, but I think every, every new tech cycle, you know, we are forced to repeat the same lessons, weirdly enough, where every new cycle of organizations um, and types of different types of technologies needs to understand, hey, I probably should go educate Washington, D.C. before I actually have to make some asks. And, um, you know, I think actually, weirdly enough, crypto is given a, um, a really bad rap in a lot of respects. But I think people in the crypto industry actually were pretty proactive when it came, you know, some um, were relatively proactive in thinking about like, I actually, you know, we need to, this is a regular, obviously going to be a regulated industry. So we need to like start dealing with this relatively early. So I think that it, it, it still is one of those areas where people do it because they have to versus doing it strategically, which is the biggest miss um, and, and proactively. Um, but you know, people are learning that over time. And I, you know, I look back at two, 2003, when we started four, six, three, like I said, there's the same lessons that we were t- talking about with our clients then that still exist now, but there's just so much more interconnection between Silicon Valley, Brussels, DC, et cetera, that, you know, that's pretty profound under the surface. Yeah. You make an excellent point. What, what I mean is, is just that both parties to some degree, I think, have mm-hmm. successfully made a punching bag out of big social media or, or yep. you know, big technology to some degree. And is there any way that, um, you know, the Valley's interested in turning that around? I mean, can they? Is it, I mean, is it even something on their minds that they're prioritizing? Uh, I mean, I think, I mean, the Valley, obviously, you can't speak. It's, 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 there's a lot of different elements of the Valley, right? And I think now we've moved to this place where some companies like find it very strategic that tech is a punching bag and big tech is a punching bag and they actually works to their favor. Um, Some companies are friends on one day, you know, Facebook and Google and enemies the next day in in front of policy forms. So I think it's all very nuanced. I think the big tech punching bag thing, you know, frankly, just comes with the territory. Right. And it would be, you know, same with big oil. Right. I mean, you know, if you're if you're as successful as tech has been and that was kind of like our message in 2003 when we started 463 was that, hey, do you guys want to be successful? You want to basically have impact on human beings life. You want to basically have products that touch average people kind of in the middle of this country you know, which wasn't happening in 2003 at a large, from a, you know, retrospectively. And, it, but when that happens, people are going to start paying attention to you. So get out in front of this. Right. Um, and that's what's happened, right. You have now TikTok in the hands of teenagers, you know, all over the country, you obviously have had Facebook and Instagram, et cetera, in the hands of folks, you have ads via Google that are, you know, interacting with people on a regular basis. And then you go on and on as you get into AI and crypto and, and the like. And so I think like, you know, I always say to the victors go the, the, the toils, right. You know, tech is one tech has been really successful. These are, you know, really, really highly market capped, you know, super high market cap companies, they deserve scrutiny. They deserve like this kind of perspective. And by the way, that means from a political viewpoint that they will be a punching bag from some standpoints, but 
let's also not forget that they're also huge friends of of members of Congress and the, the political institutions. So it's it goes both ways. And we hear we hear kind of the, the worst of it from time to time. But, you know, absolutely, I'd be doing some things differently if I were running, you know, communications or public affairs at some of these companies. But um, but I also think that that, you know, it just it just comes with the territory. All right, Sean, enjoy your perspective as always. Let me turn it over to Diana for a few moments to talk about the biggest marketing and communications news of the week. So, Diana, what in the world happened at Southwest Airlines uh, over the holiday break as thousands and thousands of flights were canceled, you know, resulting in all kinds of headlines about uh, people missing weddings and missing times with their loved ones and all of these different things. Walk us through it. And by the way, my my mother-in-law stayed at my house for an extra three days thanks to Southwest. Oh, no kidding. No kidding. Well, I hope that was a good thing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so um, so Southwest Airlines CEO Bob Jordan, first of all, he apologized for the series of cancellations and delays over Christmas weekend. Um, he said, we're doing everything we can to return to a normal operation. And he made a, a video which was um, played via Southwest Newsroom. He said he was truly sorry, and he attributed the complications to Southwest's flight plan system, claiming the airline builds its schedule around communities, not hubs. So Southwest has been working on processing refunds and proactively reaching out and taking care of uh, customers who are dealing with costly detours and reroutes. Uh, Southwest also offered to reimburse customers for reasonable hotel meal and alternative transportation expenses if travelers provide receipts. Um, And this week, uh, the airline started offering 25,000 points to customers affected by the holiday week wave of mass cancellations on top of reimbursements. Um, although baggage problems could continue on for days. Um, and the, um, the 25,000 points have a value of more than $300, apparently. Um, in addition, the airline is facing multiple investigations, scrutiny from investors, and at least one lawsuit over its cancellation of 15,700 flights at peak holiday travel time. So I um, I. Did not get out much this this holiday season, but I remember watching TV and thinking, you know, not a lot happens during this news cycle traditionally, and and Southwest just fell right into it and was <laughs> was the was the negative story of the holiday season, you know, the Grinch, if you will, and um, it was not a great look for them. Mm-hmm. Sean, um, what, what, if you were advising Southwest, what what would you tell them on on how to take steps to try to make this right? I think, well, so it's a lot in there. I mean, I, I mean, I think obviously the the apologies, you know, Di- Diana, you know, noted were, I think, pretty slow in coming, um, and there was just a lot of chaos that people were facing. You know, at a really like at a time where obviously like people are trying to get to somewhere really important over the holidays. And, and and I think obviously a lot of this, as it turns out, came because Southwest's technology stack is so antiquated. And I didn't really hear anything in the statements or apologies, um, you know, addressing kind of root cause or what's going to be done next to, you know, make sure this never happens again, um, you know, few hundred bucks is great, but like, is it enough to like, you know, I, I, if someone misses their entire, you know, Christmas with their, with their family, uh, I don't think it's just relatively small comfort. 
Um, so I think if I were them, I would set up, you know, effectively some consistent communications this year where they talk about how they're going to evolve, um, how they handle their kind of their own kind of quote unquote supply chain issues, which really had to deal with like how they got their own labor and their own crews on board different flights. Um, and then really update over time how this is being fixed and how it's being addressed and how it's being prioritized. Um, and then I think people would then end up having a lot more confidence in the airline moving forward because most people generally have good feelings about Southwest. It's a strong brand. Um, people view, especially in the, where I live in California, um, it's a really effective way to get around when you need it. And it would really suck to not have Southwest. And I don't think anyone wants that. It's, it's a very important part of like the fabric of kind of um, flying, especially in the West coast. And, um, but I do think that people expect Southwest to invest in kind of their own services um, and to protect and basically make sure that the crews are getting to the places they need to get to. So this stuff works effectively. I have another really, really just, just tragic, sad story to talk about this week. And that's during the Monday night football game, uh, the Buffalo bills star uh, safety, uh, DeMar Hamlin collapsed on the field and was, um, uh, and his heartbeat was restored. And then uh, reportedly again, when he was either on the way to the hospital or at the hospital, um, and, and it's it's another one of these situations that has, has shined the light on how um, how the NFL handled it. Um, I think there there seems to be pretty universal agreement now that the game should at least be postponed and that it was correct not to uh, continue playing it in the moment, even with the break. Um, but Diana, we, you know, the team has covered this so far, and you know what what has been the gist of what communications experts are saying about it so far. People are saying that the NFL acted too slowly to postpone the the Monday Night Football matchup, um, or had to be compelled by the teams to do so. Um, Hamlin was taken off the field in an ambulance at around nine twenty five p.m. And the, the game was postponed at roughly 10.01 p.m. Uh, in a joint agreement by the NFL and the NFL Players Association. Um, we talked to Axia Public Relations CEO Jason Mudd, who said that with this situation, the NFL has a unique opportunity to take the high road and demonstrate that the health and safety of people and not profits are its priority. Mudd said the NFL and the NFL Players Association should develop an official policy that makes it clear when and how the game referee can make or receive official in-game decisions to postpone a game. The NFL can review and revise its policy as needed based on new experience and input from its medical and security advisors, and if it fails to act accordingly, the federal government may demand oversight. Um, so, yeah, but but the uh, the Buffalo Bills kind of they're keeping people in the loop of updates. I think just an hour ago, uh, we're, we're recording this on um, early Wednesday afternoon. But about an hour ago, the Buffalo Bills tweeted that um, DeMar remains in the ICU in critical condition with signs of improvement. Um, and he's expected to remain under intensive care as his health care team continues to monitor and treat him. So they're keeping everyone in the loop. And I think the latest is uh, they've just said that Monday's game will not be resumed this week. I um, and, and obviously we we're all hoping for the best and, and, and that he gets the best outcome possible. Um, I, I I wasn't watching this game 
initially. And then I think like a lot of people, I ended up watching ESPN for, for, you know, um, it, uh, as a, as the night went on and in the moment I was really struck that it took the NFL as long as it did to put out a statement on what they were going to do. But then as time went on, I, I kind of thought it was time to give them the benefit of the doubt, given how much was going on and how much maybe they didn't know about what was actually happening with, with uh, his health status. And so, um, I mean, I was surprised initially, but I, I think a lot of people were just feeling a lot of fear on social media at the moment and maybe fearing the worst. Um, so I don't know, Sean, what were, what were your thoughts about it? Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of, I mean, I, I kind of give the NFL grace on this. I think it was obviously an incredibly complex, unique situation where, you know, should you have planned for this? Probably like, I mean, things like this can happen. It's not unprecedented in sports, obviously. Um, but, you know, I mean, this was a high stakes game. It was, you know, a big Monday night game. It's, it's like, you know, it's kind of the last thing in the back of your mind, like something like this is going to happen. It happens. It probably takes a lot to like go through that process of figuring it out. And I think, you know, there was the, the issue, obviously, that reared its head was that, you know, Joe Buck, who is a, you know, pretty much of a company guy um, on ESPN, the announcer was saying that the NFL was, was telling him that, Hey, you know, it was going to be a five minute warm up period. And then, you know, the game will resume in 20 minutes. Now I actually probably understand that like that probably is the actual process for how you restart a game when there is a delay yeah. that has nothing to do with the fact that someone you know, had a cardiac arrest. That was the process that probably was communicated to him that made things confusing. It made things, you know, feel like there, there was a gap of communication or the NFL was dragging its feet. I think the biggest issue here is that the NFL is dealing with a trust deficit. And so people are really, you know, fast to pile on and fast to say that the NFL should be doing something more, doing, you know, taking a more humanitarian perspective and being more um, proactive about this. Um, and I think that, you know, that's that that probably that trust deficit that they're working with probably hindered them in how and how they were perceived. But given all that and all that said, I think for, you know, one out, you know, this this specific period of time, I'm sure it was a really complicated moment where you had a lot of different yeah. communications flying in, a lot of very confusing and also people were really just focused on making sure that this, this one human being was like taken care of, um, you know, and let's let all the other stuff like, you know, fall to the wayside for a moment there. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, Diana, let's, let's end the podcast on a, a much happier note and tell us about this campaign that away did um, a really creative campaign to end the year uh, working with influencers. Yeah, this was really a unique um, idea. So um, luggage DTC company Away sent social man social media managers from three other brands as well as its own on an outdoor escape and documented the entire experience on TikTok. Um, so it invited social media managers from um, Getaway. Shake Shack and Sai Beauty. Um, and the, the trip consisted of a hike, dinner, campfire, and a stay in a getaway house, which is a tiny home in nature. 
Um, and of course, they had plenty of chances to create content. Um, and the whole thing was they were promoting the recently launched collection of um, outdoor focused travel bags and accessories called um, FAR for All Roots. Um, and um, yeah, it seems like they, so I think they created like three or four TikTok videos. Um, and the videos, I, we, we published this in late December. So at that point, the videos had garnered over 180,000 views across TikTok and Instagram, um, over 115,000 likes, and over 300 comments from other brands with whom the experience resonated. Um, so it was, it's a really, it was a really fun idea to um, promote their product and also kind of connect with other brands. Absolutely. I think we're also okay. planning on a second social media manager escape, so that'll be interesting. All right. Yeah. We'll keep an eye out for that. All right. Um, Sean, once again, thanks for joining us for the podcast. Hey, it was super fun. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, a few public service announcements before we wrap up. Uh, there are extended deadlines for the PR Week Global Awards and the PR, the PR Week Healthcare Awards. You can also nominate a woman leader for PR Week's Women of Distinction program. Um, and you can contribute your opinions and experiences to the 2023 PR Week and PR Talent Salary Survey, which is open for responses. Um, and new this week, there's also a set date for PR Week Healthcare Conference and Awards. That's going to be May 3rd in New York City at City Winery, which is a great venue if you haven't been there. So thanks again to Sean and thanks to Diana for co-hosting. And that's about all the time we have for this week's edition of the PR Week. See you next week. 